We're going to read from Zechariah chapter 9. You'll find that on page 1013, sort of near the, the middle of the Bible, just before the New Testament. Uh, we'll read verses 9 to 17. So that's on page 1013 of the Blue Bible. It'll be found under your chairs. This is God's word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He, his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his hand. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young woman. This is God's word. You may be seated. So in the book, And We Were Soldiers Once and Young, written by Lieutenant General Hal Moore and reporter Joseph Galloway. It detailed the Battle of Le Drang, the first battle that America found themselves in Vietnam. And so Moore was the commander of this unit that went to fight. And he it accounts of how he made a promise to his men. He said, I promise you, I will be the first one to step onto the field of battle, and I will be the last one to step off. And not one of you will be left behind, dead or alive, I promise to bring you home. And so as the battle was raging in Ladrang, a small portion of men got caught behind enemy lines. And so all around them, you know, the Vietnamese were running towards the battle with the bulk of the men. And they had to hide out, some of them injured, some of them killed, some of them alive. And spending many nights probably thinking on that promise, the general said he would come and get us. And night after night of having to sit behind those enemy lines wondering, is today that day when we'll be rescued? Is today the day that we'll be saved? And ultimately those men were saved, were reunited with what was left of their unit. The help did come. That promise was fulfilled. It's Christmas. And at Christmas, we think about Emmanuel, God with us. We get to see this Jesus, the one who was promised 
to us, the one who would come and save his people from their sins. And so today I want to continue briefly in Zechariah. We've looked at the last few weeks and look at one of the many prophecies that was given that has come true and fulfilled in Jesus Christ and how this prophecy focuses on the Messiah, the King who would bring salvation to his people. Now, to understand this prophecy, we also we have to look back at the background of where this prophecy takes place, looking forward to Jesus. And so we have to understand it in context of Zechariah. So Zechariah was a prophet. He ministered among the exiles who had returned from Persia. They were in the midst of a, a messy rebuilding project. They were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They were rebuilding the temple. And so in the midst of rebuilding, they were under constant threat from their enemies outside of that city. People who opposed them rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and their temple of worship. And if you were there, you would be seeing a people who are building and yet holding close to their side their swords to be ready to defend themselves if the enemy would attack. They also were dealing with things internally. There was bickering. There was economic problems, things that were a distraction in accomplishing what God had called them back to their home to do, and and that is to rebuild the walls and the temple. God's people had gone into exile. They went into exile because they were rebellious, because they did what God told them not to do, worshiping idols. So even after their exile, though, we see here a people that are called to repent. They still struggled with sin. They still struggled with idolatry. And so the first part of the book of Zechariah, he's dealing with restoration, how God was restoring his chosen people to Jerusalem, and how he was doing this after 70 years of being in exile. And so God was working through his people to restore things physically, but most importantly, to restore his people spiritually. Now, one of the second most important themes in Zechariah is redemption. God promised his people before they went into exile that he would redeem them, that he would buy them back. He would bring them back home. That would be a work that only God could do. And that's the thing about redemption. We can't do it ourselves. We have to rely on the Lord. And so God had to do the work in the hearts and the lives of his people. And so we see him redeeming his people in Zechariah as we read through that passage. But the much bigger picture of redemption here is the prophecy of the Messiah, how he would come and buy back his people, how he would set them free. He would set them free from their sin. And that's where the Jews missed it. They thought that this redemption would be a redemption from the tyranny of Rome. But God was not thinking of Rome. God was thinking much bigger. And that would be the redemption and the salvation of people from their sin. See, the greater enemy, which happened in the Garden of Eden, one that brought death when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And so that enemy of death, sin, has a hold on man. We needed rescuing. We needed saving. And it was not something we could do alone. 
And so when you read this section of this prophecy, we see God redeeming and saving Israel by restoring them, restoring them to their land, Jerusalem, providing for his people. And so what I want to focus on this morning is just the one verse, chapter 9, verse 9, as it points forward to the Messiah, that babe who would be born in Bethlehem, that babe who would grow up to become a man who would deliver, redeem, and save his people from their sins. So let's look at that verse 9 of that prophecy. The first part of it gives a command. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. Implied in that is there's an expectation of someone great or something extraordinary is about to happen. Something that we can't keep to ourselves like just whispering to the person next to us. No, it's a command to shout it really loud, to sing at the top of your lungs. We want people to hear who has come. We want people to know what the king has done. In our culture today, we tend to keep good news oftentimes to ourselves. We don't want people to be jealous of what we have or what good has happened to us, and so we keep silent. Or maybe when it comes to something that God has done for us, we don't want to offend people. We don't offend those who don't believe the same way we believe when it comes to our thoughts on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So we keep silent. Or we don't say anything because we fear, what are people going to say? What are they going to do to me when I share this good news? And so we keep silent. Yet the action commanded in this prophecy is rejoice greatly, shout aloud. Now, I wouldn't have a sermon if I didn't allude to a movie. Um, in the movie Elf, Christmas movie, um, Buddy the Elf is in a situation where Santa's having a hard time delivering the gifts because Christmas cheer is down. And so what does Buddy say to Jovi? He said to spread good cheer, Christmas cheer, sing loud for all to hear. Well, that's a theme you can see in a lot of movies at Christmas time. Hallmark movies have that kind of theme. Uh, pick up a lot of greeting cards at Christmas. It's a, there's so much emphasis on Christmas cheer and spreading it. Well, as followers of Jesus, we have something greater to spread. Our King, Jesus, took on flesh, was born as a baby so he could die for our sins on the cross. So that through faith in him, we get to have eternal life. That's great news. That's something that should excite us and motivate us to share with those who are still living in their sin and their misery. And so we see this command to rejoice and shout throughout Scripture. And so I want to share a few of those verses just to show it's throughout Scripture. Psalm 118, 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. See, this is a day you got to get out of bed. You got to take another breath. You got to come here to this church and shake the hands with or give a hug to a brother or sister in Christ. This is a day that God fashioned perfectly. No matter what the weather, no matter the circumstances that are happening, he knew this day would happen before the foundation of the world. And so we're told, rejoice, be glad in it that God made this day. God did it. 
Habakkuk 3, 17 and 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk rejoices and encourages us to rejoice, not with an eye on the horrible things. He just listed there. There were some pretty awful things that people had to deal with. There's some pretty awful things we all deal with day in and day out. And yet that's not the focus. He says, no, rejoice because God has given us salvation. God has given us the strength to get through another day. God is the one that enables us to walk in integrity and honor no matter how things, how hard things are. And so rejoice. Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He didn't want them rejoicing in their works. In this situation, it'd be pretty cool. They were casting out demons. I mean, who wouldn't want to rejoice in that, that I got to cast a demon out of a person? And he's saying, no, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that God has written your name in the book of life. God did that work, not you. So rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. Rejoice always, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The rejoicing is it's a command to do it all the time, to be part of our lifestyle of rejoicing, and not just in pleasant times, but in difficult circumstances. And this is a command that's couched in teaching that Paul gave them around the second coming of Christ and how there would be intense persecution and that people were going to have to deal with a whole bunch of horrible stuff in the end times. And he's saying to them, rejoice always, for this is God's will for you, if you're in Christ Jesus. And so that's the command. Rejoice, even in the midst of hard times. Are you rejoicing greatly? Are you shouting aloud when you think of all that God has done for you? As we see in Scripture, it's something we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. So why? Why do we rejoice and shout aloud? Well, I gave you some just reading some of those verses from the Old and New Testament. But in the context of this prophecy, why should we do it? Because the king, the king is going to come to his people. The king is going to come to bring righteousness and salvation. Think about that. King Jesus came, God incarnate, to bring salvation. We see that in the Christmas narrative of Scripture second person of the Godhead, the Son, being born to Joseph and to Mary. God came to us. We didn't go to him. If anything, we were rebelling. We're dead in our sins. And so God had to come to us to show us the way, to bring salvation to us, to show that we could be righteous right before God through knowing and believing in Jesus Christ. And so in Scripture, we see why Jesus came. We were blind, wandering like sheep. We had no direction. 
Somebody had to take the blinders off. Somebody had to come to us and guide us and lead us to salvation. Jesus came to do that. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This hope, this promise was given when Joseph was ready to divorce Mary, to divorce her quietly because of the honor he had. He didn't want trouble to come to her. She could have been killed because of being pregnant and not married. And as he's ready to divorce her, the angel stops him and tells him who the baby is that's growing in her. The Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us the one who would bring salvation to those who would believe in him. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The story centers around Zacchaeus. Jesus shared that there's forgiveness, just as he forgave Zacchaeus. And people grumbled and complained, like, how could you forgive this man? He's a tax collector. He's horrible. He's awful. You should not be with him. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus, who has repented and asked for forgiveness, was saved. And so that was who Zacchaeus was before he met Jesus, dead in his sin, lost. That's who we are. We don't know Jesus, dead in our sin and lost. And then we met Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.15 Paul wrote, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew his sin. He knew his sins were many. He knew he deserved to die in that sin, but Jesus came to him. When, G when Paul was on that road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians, Jesus appeared to him, changed his life brought salvation to Paul. He pursued Paul. And so Paul proclaimed aloud what God had done for him. Continued to share that truth, rejoice and shout it loud because he knew what God did in his life, changing him from the inside out. Why did God have to do these things? Because we couldn't save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves righteous. And so I want us sitting here or listening on the live stream to hear that clearly. You cannot do enough good works to ever get to heaven. You will fall short. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead things cannot make themselves alive. And then he goes on to say it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not by works. You can't do it. And sadly, some of us are going to leave here this morning thinking we can do it. My good works can be enough. God comes to us. God brings salvation and righteousness to us because there is no other way to find it. He has to give us that gift of salvation. Ezekiel 37 is a great illustration of this. Uh, it's about the valley of dry bones, and I want to read that because it gives us that picture of God taking dead things and doing the work to make them alive. It's a good picture of Israel. It's a good picture of us before we knew Jesus. 
The hand of the Lord was upon me. Ezekiel 37, starting verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Death on their own. They had to hear the word. They had to have the spirit make them alive. And we see God do that. We've seen God do that in so many of us sitting here this morning. And so we have great reason to rejoice because you got something that you don't deserve and that you didn't earn salvation, and Jesus Christ. You can't do anything for it. So how does this salvation come then? How does it come from the king, the Messiah? Well, if you were to ask a Jew how salvation was going to come for them, they would have said, there's going to be a royal steed. It's going to come into this city, and there's going to be a, a grand army coming behind them to liberate us from under the foot of Rome. Then all will know the king is here. That wasn't God's plan. Zechariah said salvation would come humbly, with great humility, on a donkey. Better yet, on the foal of a donkey. Last time I checked, donkeys aren't steeds. They're stubborn. They're used for menial labor. They're usually owned by more of the common people. And yet this is how the king of salvation and righteousness was going to come a picture that was lost on the Jews as they were more concern, consumed with political powers, more consumed with the, the rulership of Rome ending. And yet, Jesus did come. He did come as a king, but not as the Jews expected, but as he wanted, as was prophesied about him. And so, Verse 9, this prophecy we see fulfilled on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, on the, the foal of a donkey. We see that in Matthew 21. We see that in Luke 19. 
And as Jesus entered on that colt, the people spread their cloaks, their palms on the road, symbolizing a king has come. And they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so Jesus came humbly, not with great pomp and circumstance like most kings would come. I mean, think about it. When a prince wanted to marry a princess, how did he approach her? He came with his best, came with his camels, came with his horses, came with his riches. Because that's how you woo the princess. That's how you woo her father. That's how you win over the crowd. But that's not how Jesus came. And we see right from his birth all the way through to his crucifixion that he came with humility. He came humbly to his people. And so how do we see that? Well, he's not born to royalty, a king or a queen, but he's born to a carpenter and a woman that he's betrothed to Mary. His parents make a long journey to register, riding on a donkey all the way to Bethlehem. He was born in a shelter for animals. His bed, a feed bed for animals. Not what you'd expect for a king. He had to flee to Egypt because the king wanted to kill all the baby boys. And when he would become older and perform miracles, he would ask people not to say anything because it wasn't his time. He washed his disciples' feet, a task for a servant. He asked God to let this cup of wrath pass from him as he sweat bloody drops in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then he said, but not my will. Your will be done. He willingly went with the soldiers and Pharisees in the garden when he could have called a legion of angels and wiped them all out. He was crucified on the cross. And in those moments before he died, he ministered to a criminal dying on another cross right beside him, giving him hope and promise. He asked John to take care of his mother. And then he asked God and said, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Jesus, a humble servant, brought salvation. There's no other way we can be saved but through him. We need to confess our sin, because we're dead. You cannot get into heaven because of your sin. And even if you only commit one sin your whole life, which, not true, but if, you still can't get into heaven because of that one sin. You have to confess your sin. We have to confess that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sin, who was raised from the dead, beating death, acknowledging there is no other way to heaven but through what Christ did for us and accomplished for us in his death and his resurrection. And yes, that means we have to come humbly to God. We cannot come with our winsome personalities, with our list of accomplishments, or even our reasons why God would be foolish not to take me into heaven. No. We need to model our Savior. We need to come humbly, admitting our need for salvation, our need to get to heaven only through knowing Jesus Christ. We need to come on our knees, our heads bowed down, knowing I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this eternal life. Philippians 2, 3 to 9, gives us a great picture of that humbleness of Jesus and how that humbleness is to be an attribute of the people who follow Jesus. 
This is what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was humble to the point of death, a humiliating, a painful death, one that was reserved for a criminal, and yet that was the way Jesus was to die. He took the full force of God's wrath with every nail that was put through his skin because he knew if we were to have any chance of being saved, he had to take the penalty for us. That's humbleness. That's something we're to model in our own lives. People are to see our humbleness. And in seeing their humbleness, they can't see us. They need to see the real and true king, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for our sins on the cross. So think about your life. How have people seen your humble king? How have seen people seen Jesus in you? Have they seen Jesus in the family room or on the sports court? Have people seen Jesus in the boardroom or in the line at the grocery store? Have people seen Jesus when you received the greatest news ever or as you've talked about your spouse and children? Have people seen Jesus when you make a mistake or when things don't quite go according to plan? And all these things and so much more, how have people seen your humble king who gave up everything so you could be saved? Zechariah's words were there, were given to give hope. Remember, your enemies, they're on every side. The enemies did not want to see the walls of Jerusalem, the temple restored. It would have been easy for them to live in fear, to not know what the future held, to kind of pack it in and give up. But yet there was hope in the king who had come, the king who would redeem them, the king who would save them, the king who would deliver them from their sin. And yet men in their sinfulness put their hope in humans, put their hope in power, put their hope in material possessions. They did not realize the king of promise, the Messiah, would be born humbly, would live humbly, would die humbly. And yet that was the king they ultimately were looking forward to. So let us not miss the humble king of promise in the midst of the craziness of gifts and cooking and wrapping and all the stress that comes oftentimes with this time of year. Max Lucado, Christian author, said, Jesus humbled himself. He went from commanding angels to sleeping in straw, from holding stars to clutching Mary's fingers, the palm that held the universe 
took the nail of a soldier. Why? Because that's what love does. Let us rejoice and shout aloud. The king came in the manger. The king died for us on the cross. The king rose from the dead and is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. The king is coming back to gather us to himself. And so I'll say it again. Rejoice and shout aloud. You can have that hope today. We want to help you. I want to encourage you. If you've heard something this morning in the context of worship, if you've heard something that's just been said in this sermon, ask somebody before you leave. We want to share the answers to your questions. We want to share with you this hope you can have in Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, I encourage you, ask, what have you learned? How are you growing in your faith through what you've heard here as you do your devotions? Let us continue to share what Christ is teaching us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness, for your love for us. Lord, we praise you that you brought salvation and righteousness. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Yet through faith in Christ, you have given us that gift. Lord, may we rejoice. May we shout it loudly. May we not be ashamed of the truth, no matter what people will say or do. Lord, we're your people, and you've given us a gift that we're to share. That's Jesus Christ. So may we share boldly with conviction. Thank you for the work you continue to do in us and through us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.